0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Hernan Flom, the author of The Informal Regulation of Criminal Markets in Latin America. This book was published in 2022 by Cambridge University Press, and it is a deep dive into the complexity of state institutions, particularly the police. Um, and essentially criminal markets, particularly drug markets in Latin America and how they work together and in opposition to one another. Um, But I'm going to let Hernan tell us all about that. I'd like to welcome Hernan Flom to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how you came to this particular project.
1: Well, first of all, hi, Lily. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. So how I came to this project its a bit of a long answer because it's been a long time coming. So as my most first books, it grew out of my uh, dissertation at UC Berkeley. But before that, I had been working uh, quite a bit on uh, policing and criminal justice in Latin America, both in academic capacity and also as a consultant in various research projects. And so I came into the uh, doctoral study with a very clear notion of what it I wanted to to research. So it was a matter of like finding the right question or the right way to frame it into something that has already been looked at uh, quite a bit. That is, you know, the uh, uh, issue of drug trafficking and drug related violence and its relation to the state. So. After a little bit of, of thinking and 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 you know pondering what would be like the best questions or the best cases, I thought, well maybe it's um, it would be interesting to try to think of drug trafficking as you would any other type of market, just that it is an an illegal one, but it has a very strong connection with legal institutions or formal institutions, and particularly the one that is supposed to enforce the law, which is the police. And so I was curious to see how this varied across uh, Latin America and particularly in metropolitan areas in the sense of how were police dealing with these various uh, drug markets in terms of how much were they using some of the main instruments that they had with regard to these markets, particularly force or, or violence and corruption mainly. Uh, how were they applying this? Was it in a coordinated way or in an uncoordinated way? And what role were the politicians having in, in this matter as well? And then see what came out of, of this relationship. And and I started noticing different uh, patterns in some of the cases that I was a bit familiar with in Argentina, where I'm from, and Brazil, which seemed to be a, a good comparison, also being in the Southern Cone having like a similar Structure and role in terms of the drug markets, uh, international economy, so to speak. So it started uh, from there. So then I, I started looking into these uh, cases a little bit uh, more deeply, started working on the, the dissertation, which I completed, you know, a <laughs> half a life ago. And yeah, and then, well, the whole Book uh, revision and writing process started, but basically it maintained the same uh, the same notion from from that point on. Even though there was a little of uh, of steps along the way as to to getting it published, as you know is the case usually for most authors.
0: Um, and and one of the things that you sort of talk about in the book, and you and you make it this very sort of clear in terms of the research, is that um the police are distinct um within the society they are connected to the politicians but they're distinct from the politicians um and that the police operate in slightly different ways in different areas um but you also talk about how they the police as a political institution um operates in relationship to the drug cartels the the sort of organized markets, as you said, that are illegal, um, but are structured. So we're talking about different kinds of structures in relation to one another's. Can you talk a little bit about how you sort of s- started to tease that out?
1: Yeah. So basically what I started to, uh, to see is that, as you mentioned, there were various patterns, with regard to the relationship between politicians and police. So first, as you said, these are distinct entities. So this is something that uh, I started. I think that my book uh, kind of differentiates itself from some of the uh, literature on this topic, which tends to sort of think of the state as a single uh, actor, a singular actor in its fight against or in its uh, complicity with uh, the drug cartels or other organized uh, criminal actors. And I, from the beginning, wanted to split it and say, well, you know, on the one hand, you have the politicians whose interests may not be the same as those of the police. And, and, and the police itself might, even though they are formally subordinate to these politicians, they might not necessarily be Uh, abiding by everything that the politicians tell them to do. So I think that is something that has to be uh, looked at instead of of assumed. And so I started digging up on that and saw that there were various, like I said, patterns or different types of relationships between uh, police and politicians that hinged on the level and type of police autonomy. So in some cases, police have a greater autonomy from politicians in the sense that politicians do not have a strong role in supervising or intervening in various aspects of the police internal governance and how they carry out their operations and in other cases is the opposite and when the opposite happens when politicians can curtail uh, police autonomy they can also do that for different purposes whether it is to as I say in the book uh, professionalize the police like uh, make it more respectful of Uh, the rule of law and human rights and the general norms of democracy. And in other cases, it might be to politicize it, to make it more subservient to their own uh, personal or partisan interests. So depending on these uh, type of patterns, uh, what I argue is that you will get different types of connections or, as I refer to it in the book, uh, informal regulatory arrangements in which the police intervene in drug markets differently so for instance when the police have greater uh, autonomy from politicians the type of regulatory structure that emerges is what i refer to as a particularistic confrontation which is quite uh, disorganized you know police are not a cohesive unit even respect to each other much less to uh, the politicians so this results in a very high level of Uh, corruption, very fragmented deals that the police have going going on with criminal actors, and in some cases, even higher levels of of violence, Uh, not not only between police and criminal actors, but also uh, between, you know, uh, in terms of police violence and criminal violence itself. So so that is like one distinct pattern. And then there are other uh, patterns that emerge when police autonomy is uh, lower when politicians are able to uh, subordinate it a little bit, either to their own interests or to more general aspects uh, of the rule of law.
0: Um, and one of the things that you note at the very start of the book um, that is that you actually worked in Argentina um, and you interacted directly for an extended period of time with a lot of folks who were involved in the police um, and politicians. You were in the Ministry of Defense, is that correct? Security, security. Um, and and so you talk about many people throughout the book that you spoke with and you had many, many interviews. Um, and And I was curious about how this also contributed to the sort of broader thesis that you were working on in terms of, you know, somebody saying something to you and you're like, ah, that, that proves my thesis. And somebody saying something else to you and you're like, mm, maybe it doesn't prove my thesis. Uh, <laughs> can you talk about your experience with these interactions, these actual interactions?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, of course. So, so, I mean, I would maybe split it in, into two parts. So, like, one, uh, there was a set of interactions that went on with the police and with other actors as well obviously, politicians, but also judges, prosecutors, etc. cetera. Uh, when I was carrying out the, the field work for, for the dissertation and then for uh, the book. But then, as you mentioned, when I, once I completed uh, the PhD and a postdoc, I went back to Argentina and I worked for a couple of years in the National Ministry of Security, and I was in in charge of a training uh, program for higher-ranking uh, police officers. Uh, but just just in that capacity, you know, I got to interact a lot with uh, police who were not necessarily like deep. Uh, central actors of my study because i was looking at more subnational uh, police forces in the book and these are federal forces but they still had some type of uh, of relevance of participation uh, but in that what i what i took out of those uh, interactions maybe was that for the most part i sort of gained more confidence in that one aspect of my uh, thesis was uh, correct in the sense of, I talk about the importance that political competition has in terms of uh, elected officials' capacity to control the police, to reduce their autonomy. And I say that, well, when there is a, a high level of competition, such as, for instance, uh, you know a change in government or a high level of fragmentation in terms of divided government or split cabinet and whatnot, that would make politicians chances to control the police much harder um, they will reduce those chances. I mean, so I, I think that I really started seeing that and, and I saw that those kinds of reflections from the uh, politicians that I was working with. So I was in an administration that had a little bit of a, uh, like a fluctuation in terms of its electoral output during just those uh, two years. So when I came uh, into the government, it just uh, a couple of months later, there was a midterm election which the uh, government won. and so they felt very uh, bolstered and confident well uh, this is the time when we can you know sort of start demanding and imposing different things uh, from the police. And then just a couple of years later, when it came to the uh, next general election, the government's popularity had, you know, crashed down, you know, the country was in the middle of an economic crisis, as it usually is, sadly. And the, and then the, the government lost the um, sort of primary election before the, the, the general election. And at the time, it was like, basically, the, the sense uh, around the uh, the administration and the terms around the ministry was well, well. This is basically over. So like, we can't, there's no point in trying to start anything now because like nobody's gonna listen to us. They're not gonna follow anything. They're just gonna like make pretend and maybe even just say straight to our faces like, "What are you talking about? You're gonna be out of here within a couple of months." So, uh, so yeah. I mean, I certainly saw that kind of of dynamic. What I think maybe. Uh, it doesn't necessarily contradict my, uh, my argument, but it certainly would, would nuance it. And, and this is something that I'm starting to look at for, for different projects is, well, to what level, again, do all, do we also think of the police as a, a singular organization, right? So, so it's not just a split between politicians and police, but within the police, there are also various uh, cultures or subcultures Uh, that emerge and, you know, there are people who sort of take a more isolationist uh, approach and, you know, think of for themselves and try to steer away from uh, what the hierarchy wants. There are also various limitations on to what extent police commanders can impose certain orders on on their subordinates. You know, there are certain groups uh, within the police, certain cliques that, you know, depending on their on their role on their function they have maybe their own way of of doing things and hence their own uh, internal sources of legitimacy maybe because of certain types of expertise or or prestige uh, within the organization and whatnot so so it is very much of a a complex uh, world <laughs> which i'm i'm still very much looking into uh, but yeah i think that would probably be uh, the main aspect that I took that like I said doesn't necessarily contradict the argument, but it does put a little bit more nuance to it or complexifies it a little bit
0: and it's certainly something we in the United States have been you know examining and and seeing um in our own police forces in different parts of the country
1: in different size areas and yeah yeah well the u s has about nineteen thousand police forces you know counting all police departments, county sheriffs, you know, federal agencies, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, it's like a bit of a never ending story.
0: Um, and so I, I wanted to ask you again, because I am not at all an expert in any of this, um, about the two countries themselves. Um, and obviously, you know, you have great familiarity with Argentina, um, but Brazil is, you know, a very large country, um, different language, different culture, different colonial settlers. Um, and and so I I was curious to know a bit about how you set up this comparison um, and what are some of the distinctions you found between Argentina and Brazil as Latin American
1: compatriots? So. I first, I, f- I think that I was uh, interested in this comparison first because I, you know, also wanted to kind of get away from the typical cases of uh, the drug uh, organized uh, criminal actors uh, literature, which are typically as you probably are thinking about right now, Mexico and and Colombia. Uh, Brazil, to some extent, was already uh, being discussed, particularly the case of. Of Rio de Janeiro, but not as much so the case of, of Sao Paulo, as, as I include in the book, and not as much from a comparative uh, perspective. So looking at these two uh, different stories. So so the way I, f- I thought about it, and, and I think it came out, or I tried it, at least, uh, I think it came out nicely in the book, it's uh, that you have this kind of cross comparison that, that goes on, on the one hand, between each case in the same country, so between Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo in Brazil, and then in Argentina between Buenos Aires uh, and Rosario, but then you have also uh, similarities uh, in the patterns across these countries. So to some extent, Buenos Aires is more similar to Sao Paulo in the sense that it, the government there was able to subordinate uh, the police, albeit for different Uh, purpose and then established a more ordered or coordinated uh, regulatory arrangement with lower levels of violence, both from the police and from criminal violence in general. Whereas Rosario is much closer to to Rio in a sense that uh, it's been particularly for the last almost two decades now, a very difficult uh, situation with a lot of political uh, turmoil and competition with a very highly autonomous and disorganized uh, police. And this has resulted in abysmal levels of uh, corruption and an ever-increasing level of violence, which is very similar to to the story in Rio de Janeiro, except maybe for the part that uh, police violence in, in Rosario is much lower than than it is in Rio. I mean, the the level of uh, police violence that you see in, in Rio de Janeiro is uh, atrocious. It's probably, I mean, if not the highest, among the highest certainly uh, in the world, and that is not something that is replicated in, in the other contexts. Uh, that might certainly have something to do with some of the factors that you mentioned uh, in your question in terms of the differences in, uh, in terms of colonial uh, origins obviously there's a very big uh, gap in terms of the racial uh, configuration uh, between uh, two countries and there's as in the us in brazil there is a very significant concentration of victims of police violence among afro uh, brazilians who are also generally Uh, poor and live in favelas and are most typically associated uh, with crime. And these uh, racial uh, dynamics are not equivalent in in Argentina. I mean, there's also obviously racism and other types of profiling, but they have a different type of of tone, I I would think. But uh, going back to to their similarities, I think that one of the things that, that was interesting about them was A, that these were two uh, countries that had historically been uh, ports of exit of drugs from latin america to europe as opposed to a different corridor that you know goes from colombia through mexico or central america and sometimes through the caribbean uh, to the united states so this is another uh, route uh-huh. and Secondly, they historically they, ha- they have been added, uh, adding to this historic uh, export role and increasing level of internal consumption, particularly in their uh, main cities, which are the ones that I'm that I'm looking at. So I'm concentrated on the man- main metropolitan areas. And another aspect that I that I think was uh, important in picking these these cases is that they are. Uh, Middle-income countries with relatively high uh, state capacity, and that is important because I want to show that this is not a matter of of state capacity in the sense that you know these drug markets are uh, burgeoning because there is no state, there are no police, the state is unable to do anything about it, doesn't have the resources. Of course, there are you know issues with uh, with resources and the police, as in all. Parts of the state, but that is not necessarily a problem. Particularly when you're looking at uh, an an area of the drug trafficking uh, trade, uh, its economy that is very much anchored territorially. You know, it's one thing to look at uh, you know, the contraband that takes place across uh, international borders. You know, where drugs are concealed, sometimes in a very elaborate or sophisticated ways, or let alone when. You know, drugs are shipped overseas, uh, hidden in containers of various types of products, and there's a much greater level uh, of sophistication and less that what, uh, of what the state can do about it, in a sense, to, to control that. But here you have uh, you know drugs that are being sold, sometimes in open site from from neighborhoods uh, across the city in like again the most populated cities in the world and it might be like right across or a couple of blocks away from uh, police stations or where police are circulating and making the rounds on a on a daily or hourly basis so so there has to be something else going on there that explains okay well why are why and how are police intervening in in this area, in this context, in this way, and not so in, or uh, doing so differently in another. Uh, and I think that Brazil and Argentina were uh, in, interesting cases to to highlight that. And finally, and not to to dwell too much on on this question, to you know just make this a methodological uh, or research design uh, uh, talk. Uh, there is something that uh, is particular to them that. Other countries in Latin America don't have. That is, they are federal countries, and uh, that means that the main police force that is in charge of patrolling and uh, you know controlling different types of criminal activity on the ground are the subnational police, and they are uh, beholden to the governors. Uh, and so this allows for us to see you know, very clear subnational variation uh, across the cases without necessarily tracing it back to uh, the federal government or the national government, as you would have to do in other cases uh, in Latin America.
0: And, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that you did find um, that I was really intrigued by was uh, the sort of contracts, I guess, um, that happened in a number of places between the police and the, some of the, um, criminal markets. Um, and I was, I mean, I understand there's, there's oftentimes been these relationships of, you know, police, corrupt, corrupt police, um, having relationships with the drug cartels or the mafia, um, and it's sort of protection, um, but but you note in the book and you explore this, and I found it fascinating about how in places where some of these contracts existed, the violence went down substantially. And and, and you know, again, it was kind of like a form of governance, but not the actual legal governance. <laughs> Can you talk about one or two of those examples?
1: yeah yeah sure I mean yeah I mean I certainly think that's a well on, on the ground it's like a very fascinating thing to, to to uncover I mean and you sort of hear about it uh, or either from the media or reading about it different uh, existing uh, accounts of of these cases but then it's you know like a, another level of of excitement to, to see that kind of like manifesting uh, itself for you as a, as a researcher uh, so yeah I think that, the, the two main uh, kind of informal contracts that, that you might be alluding to uh, refer to the two ordered cases uh, in the in the book, or the most orderly cases, I should say. Uh, and those are uh, Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo. So in the uh, Buenos Aires case, and, and again, I should emphasize this, are obviously informal uh, dealings, agreements, packs. there's obviously nothing written uh, here. but what is going on is like a very uh, evident type of uh, exchange of protection from the police towards uh, criminal actors in exchange for a tax or some type of material uh, benefit or some other non-material incentives sometimes Uh, and in exchange for that what the police can do is basically sometimes alert Uh, criminals as to, you know, if there is another gang that is trying to raid uh, their area, maybe the police can even arrest uh, those criminals. If then the criminals can also, you know, point them towards a drug shipment or even give them a share of the drugs that they themselves are are importing. So the police can keep up uh, the pretense of uh, yes, we are fighting the drug war, we are seizing these many drugs and so on and so forth and say face and particularly this is something that looks good for uh, for the the politicians. Uh, and in the meantime, there is a lot of uh, money, in many cases, that uh, is being funneled into the you know, sometimes the pockets of uh, individual police uh, officers. Sometimes it goes towards, you know, funding uh, the police's informal budget so to speak so uh, police working conditions are not the best in Latin America uh, as you might imagine so sometimes this is helpful you know either to you know put a, an extra load of uh, gas in the vehicles or to be able to repair you know, a station where pipes are leaking and, and so on. And sometimes it's just seized by uh, individual officers or politicians that can, they can also put this to uh, use for their own political benefit in terms of financing uh, electoral campaigns or for enriching themselves, so to speak. Uh, and there is no shortage of uh illegal or um sort of in non-declared non-disclosed uh, funds that are that are being circulated uh, in Argentine politics and in latin american politics probably more generally uh the other uh, case I, I, I and so sorry sorry to um to wrap up this this case i mean what also comes out of of this agreement is a non-aggression pact so to speak in the sense that uh what police are demanding from from the criminals is that okay, you're able to carry out this enterprise, you know, the drug selling and, and whatnot, but you have to keep a lid on uh, criminal violence in this territory. Otherwise, you know, the police would be under greater political and social pressure to crack down uh, on, on those criminals. Uh, and so this has a somewhat pacifying effect in the sense that police don't, also don't need to raid these different areas There doesn't need to be so many violent exchanges between the police and criminal actors and also criminal actors are not fighting each other because the police are kind of warding them off uh, so that reduces the level of violence uh, overall the other case where where this happens is in in sao paulo and that is a different con- configuration because a you have Uh, as opposed to Buenos Aires, where the the drug market scene is much more fragmented and Sao Paulo is much more consolidated. So you have a a drug gang there that is hegemonic, that's been controlling uh, drug trafficking and many other illegal markets for a couple of decades now, the uh, so-called PCC or First Commando de Capital, Primeiro, Comando de Capital in Portuguese. Uh, And and the second difference is that, uh, unlike in Buenos Aires where there has been a very high uh, level of uh, corruption and appropriation of rents from illegal uh, enterprises, including drug trafficking by police and politicians. This doesn't seem to be the case uh, in Sao Paulo, at least not what I could gather from from my research there. Uh, What does seem to be going on is that for most of this period, there has been uh, also a non-aggression pact between the police and, and the criminal gang where the police afford the gang certain privileges to operate, both in the prison and in the streets, mainly in the urban periphery of Sao Paulo. And the gang also then limits its own uh, assaults on police and also keeps a lid on other criminal activity that is going on in the neighborhood. This is obviously in the service of having a more stable business environment, so to speak, in which to conduct drug selling and being able to fund uh, the gang's structure and support uh, its network, because obviously it has a lot of financial needs, particularly when you have a high level of members who are who are imprisoned. So that is kind of uh, what's going on. And, and both of these cases have, for the most part, uh, in the last two decades, been able to keep a, a lid on on violence, both on police violence and criminal violence in general, uh, to a much more successful level degree than what the other cases have done. Uh, that is Rio, Janeiro and Rosario.
0: And, and you talked a little bit about Rio and Rosario already, but can you talk about the structural distinctions since you've given us this really clear um, cases with regard to the orderly function um, of the markets and the interactions in Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo, um, the flip side of what's not going on in the other two places?
1: Yes. So so probably like I said, uh, Rio is maybe a little bit more familiar for, uh, for most uh, scholars or uh, observers of, of Latin America just because and uh, the level of police violence that you see there is so egregious. And even though now it's probably worse than it has been, uh, it has been kind of fluctuating for, for, for a few decades, but it's always been on a very high level. And that, I argue, is a part because uh, every time that politicians have come into office uh, in Rio with the pretense of, well, we want to... Uh, reform the police, we want to make the police more respectful of human rights, we want to curb police violence and abuses, particularly against the poor. They've never had, or very rarely have had, I should say, the political cloud uh, to do it. And so what tends to happen is that you know these reforms are very short-lived, they are undermined by resistance from both the police and uh, other political and, and social actors. And basically, they just like kind of fade away towards the end of the term. And then, you know, a different administration comes in with a different type of perspective on on security that says, well, you know, the other previous administration was too lenient on crime uh, and did not use the police enough. We need to give more powers back to the police. So you get this kind of cycle of reform and, and counter-reform uh, that is very present in Rio and also to some extent in, in Rosario as well. You see the same cycles of... Uh, different elected officials trying to apply different types of policies with regard uh, to the police. What comes out in both of these uh, situations is a very uncoordinated uh, structure within the police and consequently an uncoordinated regulation by the police of drug markets. So instead of having like a more vertically organized or hierarchical uh, structure, of controlling these uh, drug markets as you have in the other cases. Uh, every unit of, of police, every precinct or division or territorial uh, uh, location or outpost that whatnot, not uh, is basically trying to fend off for themselves or trying to maximize the amount of rents that they can extract from this business. And they are not offering any type of credible or reliable protection to to the drug market actors that are carrying out this activity. Uh, so what you get there is that on the one hand, uh, police in Rio particularly uh, distinguish themselves by using force and violence as a way of pressuring uh, criminal actors into uh, increasing the amount of funding that they are supposed to pay the police, even if the protection is not reliable. so that and makes for a great deal of confrontation between the police and and the criminals in Rosario by contrast the criminals are not as powerful and not as organized as they are in Rio so the police have a, an easier time in sometimes extracting these rents uh, from from the criminal actors but they also and they, uh, but they are similar in the sense that they are also not offering any type of Uh, credible uh, protection from different police units, from different police forces, or from judicial prosecution. Uh, So this generates a lot of uh, instability and uncertainty in this area. So you see a great deal of conflict between uh, criminal gangs. Many times that civilians are involved in the crossfire, and this generates a great level of uh, civilian casualties as a result of these uh drug markets and I think that Rio is simply a more extreme version of this uh of the scenario in the sense that as I said before uh police are much more inclined to use violence there because they are also dealing with more sophisticated criminal actors uh, that are more heavily armed than is the case in Rosario but Sadly, what has been going on in Rosario over the last two years is that uh, level general levels of violence have increased to the point that they are very similar to what is going on in Rio. So, so there are some uh, similarities as well. Um,
0: and and so, in terms of these these comparisons uh, and the understanding of them in context of a f- of federal states, uh, which is uh, I thought, also a unique aspect of, of your, your work here. Um, is there something about the federal states? I, I mean, I assume it's the sort of power that goes down to the subnational areas um, that allows for more or less coordination with criminal gangs?
1: I don't think that there's something about the federal states in particular. I mean, it has to do more so with uh, maybe the political alignments between the federal and the subnational government. So, so for instance, maybe to uh, to try to illustrate this a little bit, uh, in Argentina there is a much greater level of uh, participation or interventions, should say, of the federal government in the case of the province of Buenos Aires because it is the by far the most imp- the largest and most important province. Uh, in the country i mean it holds about 40 percent of of the electorate and for most of the time there was also the president and the governor of the province came from the same party so what happens in the province politically also has obviously a great level of importance for presidential aspirations for election or, or re-election and, and and by the same token Federal decisions, in terms of say how do they distribute uh, resources from the federal government to the subnational governments, have a great deal of importance for the, the province of Buenos Aires as well. So, in this sense, the the police has been one of the one of the areas in which this s- struggle uh, or conflict between the federal and the subnational uh, government has occurred. Uh, but that also that goes back to whether you had a, a political rivalry or by opposition and alignment between these two actors. So when these actors are uh, in tandem, when say the um, the the federal the head of the federal government, the president is the undisputed leader of the national movement, then there is a maybe a tense harmony, but a harmony uh, at last of uh, these two these two actors uh, in. In Brazil, maybe there is not that much of a direct, or at least I didn't see as much of a direct uh, influence of uh, the federal government on the uh, the subnational governments. Uh, the only exception might be a case of of Rio during uh, the time when uh, the program that was referred to as uh, pacification police was was in vogue. Uh, because basically what happened is that the state and local uh, say, corps or the the, uh, the 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 bodies or the, the legislative blocks at the local and state level of the pt the workers party which was in power the national government at the time they the national party was aligned with the uh, party that was governing rio which was the pmdb uh, so their blogs in the state legislature and in the city legislature basically like gave their blessing for this program to to take place and didn't try to challenge it as maybe some other uh, members of the left had in previous administrations so that enabled the uh, the program to to be implemented uh, but other than that the the role of the federal government i think but well, yes sometimes they sign federal troops obviously that is important uh, but aside from that is it's much more reduced and so i don't think that there is anything maybe specific about uh the federal government but 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 that being said i think that what's important to point out i think this is something that was uh, relevant for for my argument is that uh, on the one hand these uh you know the, the crimes that are being investigated here that are related to drug trafficking, they tend to be a, a formal prerogative of the federal government because they are you know more complex, more relevant, etc. But either because that jurisdiction has been formally handed down to the subnational governments, or because simply you know the subnational police are the main body of the state in the streets and they are running into these uh, situations and these markets more often, the subnational police are in fact like sort of the de facto uh, regulators of, of these uh, drug markets and other illegal markets. So I think that, that is an important contrast between, okay, what does the, the law say about you know, who is supposed to uh, regulate uh, this, uh, this criminal activity? and then who is informally and de facto uh, regulating this uh, just to maybe add something that i also should have mentioned uh, regarding this point this uh, conflict was also apparent in, in rosario at, at one point that i was studying the the case because uh, on the one hand the uh, subnational administration was very much uh, alarmed and, and worried about the level of violence that was uh, coming out of the confrontation between criminal gangs and how that it was spreading around the city. But on the other hand, they say, well, we don't have the judicial authorization to do anything about uh, drug trafficking with our own police because that is a prerogative of the federal government. And the federal government is either, you know, they have very few or... Uh, scant manpower or little political interest sometimes to to intervene uh, in the city so that allowed the the problem to fester and reach a point where it was very uh, complicated for the subnational government to deal with.
0: And you already alluded to where your research may be going. Um, But one of the questions I always ask my authors when I talk to them is, what exactly are you working
1: on next? Yep. Okay. So I'm working on a couple of things. So the the main thing that I'm interested in is um, variation in levels of police violence. And and what I'm basically trying to look at is, okay, how similarly to what I've... uh, been researching previously about how does the role uh, or the relationship between politi- police and politicians influence uh, this outcome. But also, uh, as I alluded to uh, in one of your previous questions, maybe uh, how does the internal organization of police also affect uh, this outcome? And, and by that, I mean, uh, what are the, the key variables that are occurring inside uh, the police particularly in those uh, spaces that are the most most frequently interacting with citizens and potentially most involved in situations of, uh, of violence and abuse of, of human rights what are the main factors that are conditioning these officers behaviors right is it, you know where they are located is it is what type of messages are they getting from their peers, from their superiors? How are they interpreting signals from political actors? So, one of the, uh, I should say, maybe one of the pending assignments I think for from from my book is maybe trying to uh, theorize and um, and specify a little bit more, kind of like the the mechanism chain that goes from political decisions from public policy decisions to the uh, actions of an individual police officer on the ground. So, so, I think that that kind of micro logic as to how police uh, operate still needs to be a little bit more uh, fleshed out uh, and then seeing, okay, well, what, how, how is it that we get uh, these different patterns? I mean, so, so why is it, you know, that you know if every police officer is acting by themselves so to speak why do we get like a more general pattern from the police department in the city or in the province uh, in general so so that is kind of like what i'm interested uh, in looking at uh, and i have a couple of projects uh, related to that but (laughs) maybe that's as far as I could talk about it right now. But I mean, I'd be happy to talk more about it, but I do will, will you be looking worry. at Brazil
0: and Argentina again, or just one of them, or other countries?
1: Yeah, so probably I would be looking at, at Brazil and Argentina just because I, I already have like accumulated a lot of experience on, on them, and they seem to be relevant uh, cases for this question, but my uh, interest and where I'm going to be carrying out my uh, field work hopefully within the next uh, uh, few months uh, over the course of the year uh, is uh, also going to be incorporating the case of Cali in in Colombia, uh, which is like a totally different uh, story with regard to to Brazil and Argentina. I mean, starting with the fact that uh, it's a different organization of of police in a unitary country, a national police force, uh, but one in which is still, I think, I think, at least, you still see this level of uh, variation in terms of uh, police violence and police behavior at the subnational level, and with every change or with uh, changes in uh, the political control of the municipal government in this case. So, so I'm interested in seeing how does that uh, how does that play out, uh, and. Then potentially I could add a, a couple of other cases, but for now that is where I'm gonna be starting the, the research.
0: Well, I hope when the book is done you'll come and speak with me about it on the New Books Network. I again. hope
1: I hope it won't be too long before that <laughs> stop, But yeah. <laughs> I, I <laughs>
0: hope so. it won't be as as long perhaps as the gestation of this book.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah, hopefully that won't that won't be the case, but yeah, you never know how, never how know. these projects <laughs> evolve. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, I want to thank Hernan Flom for joining me today to talk about the Informal Regulation of Criminal Markets in Latin America, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Um, I direct people to the Cambridge University Press website for purchase of the book. Do you have a brick and mortar store that you want to give a shout out to? Uh,
1: No, not not that I know of. So, so yeah, I will just leave it. It's available at your usual uh, retailers or (laughs) usual distributors. (laughs)
0: Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today, Hernan. No, thank you so much for having me, Louis.